This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Let's face it. People have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Bed, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements, so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com at amica insurance we know it's more than just a car or a house it's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home when you combine auto and home insurance with amica we'll help protect it all and the more you cover the more you can save amica empathy is our best policy. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from New York City. We're down in Soho at the Soho Grand Hotel. You know, I talk about neighborhoods in in New York, especially neighborhoods in Manhattan. I'm from Manhattan, and I'm one of those stalwarts who's been in his same neighborhood since he's six months old. In fact, I've been in my same building since I'm six months old. Um, But there are so many great neighborhoods, and this hotel is located in one of the hot ones. And you just go out of the, I call it a dangerous neighborhood. And because you walk out of the hotel, you can either turn left or right. And within about 60 feet, get out your wallet because you want to buy something, you want to eat something, you want to shop. I mean, it's amazing. And joining me now, the guy who knows a little bit about this, he's the food critic for the New York Observer, one of our friends who joins us when we're back in New York, Joshua David Stein. Hey, man. 
Hello, how are you doing? You agree it's hot. Soho is a hot neighborhood. It has been since the 70s, and it will always be, I think. I mean, when I, you know, you look on Fifth Avenue, and when they have a sale there, they reduce things to retail. Yeah. <laughs> but here, I mean, there are what? How many restaurants in New York, in Manhattan, I think it's like 19,000. It's something ridiculous. Yeah. Right? But per square block here in Soho, it's even more compressed. Well, I think the thing that I like about Soho is you do have the shopping, you have all that stuff, but it also maintains some of the cool that it, you know, it's not the Madison Avenue big box stores, although there's some of that too, but there's really interesting small places as well. Idiosyncratic. Idiosyncratic, yeah. Well, their own personality. They're not, you, you're not going to find a lot of branded things here, except if it's, their, if it's a mom and pop brand. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a hope. Where yeah. did you grow up in Manhattan? Where I am right now, 96th Street and Park. Oh, has that neighborhood changed a lot? No. Yeah. Now, that's what I like about it, you know. Now, it's not considered hip. You're not going to see a lot of outdoor cafes. It's not, like, it's not the West Side energy. Yeah. But when you, when you have the, the lifestyle that I have and the travel schedule that I have, when you come home, you don't want the West Side. You don't want the hustle and bustle. No. But everybody makes those choices. By the way, I love the West Side. But when I'm finished with the West Side, I, I want to go home. Yeah. <laughs> It's one of those things. I hear you. I now live up in Morningside Heights, which is another... Wow, you're a Columbia University guy. Yeah. and it, Well, I'm not. But I mean, you're NYU there. forever, which yes. is actually around here, but... Well, it's, 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 it's walking distance from yeah. here. Yeah. And slowly, it's growing to take over the entire uh, West Village and, and Central Village. But um, if truth be told, I should tell you, the NYU folks rejected me. Oh, is that true? That's true. I went to... A school. I went to public schools here in New York. Yeah. What school? I went to, well, I went to PS6 on 82nd. I uh-huh. went to Robert Wagner on 76th in Bronx Science. Okay. But in those days, you could only apply to three colleges because the Board of Education was broke, where we heard that before. Yeah. And they didn't have the guidance counselor budget to fill out all the applications. So other than... Oh, so that was your school, your high school saying that you could apply. Other than a state university and a city college, you could only apply to three colleges. So, of course, you applied to your impossible one, your maybe one, and your slam dunk one. My impossible one was Wesleyan, mm-hmm. when it was an all-boys school in Middleton, Connecticut. My maybe was Wisconsin, and my slam dunk, boy, you're not going to miss out on this one, is NYU. Well, in April, when the letters came in, I got a letter from Wesleyan. I'm reading the letter. It's the most beautifully crafted letter in the world about what an honor it was to meet me and what a, what a tribute I was to the community. Somewhere in that letter were four words. You can't come here. Right. I couldn't find them. but they Buried. Were yeah. Well, that's a Wesleyan way. Right. And then I get a letter from NYU. They turned me down. Wisconsin accepted me. And I'm actually sitting in this room right now because of Wisconsin. So there's my shout out. But you know what? It's okay. I forgive NYU. Yeah. It's taken many years. Well, you know, for me as an NYU grad, you talk about this neighborhood, right? The neighborhood has certainly changed Soho, but more so the, the West Village and Greenwich Village because of NYU. And as someone who lives in the city and went to NYU, it's kind of a mixed, you know, I have mixed feelings about it. I'm not that proud, to be honest, of how it's developed and how it's interacted with the neighborhood. Right, but the neighborhood, the neighborhood still has a great character here. This neighborhood, Soho, I think, does and will. And I, it's not to say that Greenwich Village doesn't, but it's just much different after NYU has bought so many buildings and really transformed it. But the nice thing about it is, of course, you can walk the neighborhood. And from this hotel, using the Soho Grand as your hub... You're in great shape. And when we come back, I want to talk to you about your favorite places in the hood. Okay. Because I know you got them. I do. I know. And are they reasonable? Always reasonable. I'm a reasonable man. (laughs) Well, you went to NYU. You didn't have a choice. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Did I get you there? (laughs) 
Mm, okay. <laughs> All right. Fine. Be that way. Joshua David Stein, the, the restaurant critic for the New York Observer. We'll come back with Joshua and get his tips within a, maybe a five or ten block area of where we are right now. I'm back with more of Peter Greenberg Worldwide from the Soho Grand Hotel in New York right after this. All right. I'm putting you on the spot. It's okay. All right. So I'm, I'm at the Soho Grand. Yeah. Right? And I go. And by the way, you you're so hungry you can't you can't wait more than seven minutes. Is that the okay? The there setup? you go. That's it. Go. Okay, you're so hungry you can't wait seven minutes, but you want to walk. Well, I do think that the the each neighborhood kind of has its restaurant king, right? Who has a little empire, and definitely for Soho, it's this guy John McDonald. Now he has a place called Lore, which is a fish bar. I love that place. Yeah, they actually have one in Miami Beach now. Yeah, they open right at the up. Lowe's. Yeah, exactly. That place is amazing because first of all, I love the design of that restaurant. It's like a yacht. You it's walk a, in it's there. It's a yacht you've always wanted. You know, when you walk in, you almost want to take your shoes off. Yeah, because of the wood. Because of the wood. Yeah, but DOH. I know. No, they won't. Not fine. But it's it's designed beautifully. Yeah. So he has uh, he has Lore there. A little bit east and north, he has Bowery Meat Company, but that's too far. But that's a wonderful place as well. But he just opened up a restaurant here called Cesanta, which is um, on 60 Thompson, second floor. And it's, it's you know, there's, there's a real coastal Italian moment going on. That's coastal Italian. And it's really delicious. And, you know, the, the, the bar here, well, they've done something very interesting about the bar here at this hotel. Yeah. All the American whiskeys. I, it's only, what is it? It's uh, No, it's not. But the point is... They've got them up there, I think like 80 separate brands of things you've never even heard of from states that you didn't even think were in the Union still. <laughs> well, maybe when we're done here, we'll <laughs> venture up there. All right, so you've got, you've got Lure for Fish. Yeah, right? Fish, and, a, and they've got sushi. They have a great chicken sandwich. It might be off menu, but uh, if you ask for it, they'll give it to you. Um, Cesanta, Coastal Italian. Of course, you have Balthazar, which I would be remiss not to mention. Now that's been around for what twenty years now. It's a it's a it's a mainstay. Yeah, and it's Keith McNally who um, had pastis until relatively recently. Okay, here's the question that I'm sure you're challenged with because of what you write about. How do you keep a place like that still relevant? I think Keith has been really good in the sense that he executes really well one concept, which is pretty simple. In this case, it's a brasserie, and it doesn't change. If you went to if you went to Balthazar. 15 years ago, it would look essentially the same as it does today. So I think his his um, genius is to realize that you don't have to change to be relevant. You execute something incredibly well, and it will continue to be relevant. And you know what they execute well there? The French fries. Oh, man. Man, those French fries. Today might be French fry day, or it's coming up somewhere. I've been getting a lot of emails about it, and really? those are some of the best French fries I've had. Yeah. Serious. Yeah. Now, not far from here, is a place I've only recently discovered, and it's a pretty dangerous place. Rice to Riches? Oh, the rice... The rice um, pudding place. The rice pudding place. Oh, my God. I mean, this is a place you want... 20 different kinds of rice pudding. Yeah. But, you know, if you're in that neighborhood, which I guess is more... It's close to Chinatown. Yeah, but technically, I guess... I think that would be um, NoHo, right? Yeah, yes. Yeah. 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 Um, there's Parm, which is a Terizi, guys. They have uh, this Terizi... Italian Specialties is a wonderful restaurant. Um, that's a more casual place. You have Balabusta, which is Mediterranean over there, which is just out of this world wonderful. Rice to Riches is delicious. And they're open real late. Yeah. Gotta well, love that. Is that when you're, you're, you're in the neighborhood? It's never too late for, for rice, rice to riches. <laughs> I'm telling you, especially if you it's You heard it here first. That's true. It's never too late. Although the best rice pudding, although theirs is pretty good, the best rice pudding is going to be in a surprising place for you. You know where it is? Mm, it's no. in Istanbul. I'm, 
And I'll tell you why it's in Istanbul, because what they do there is they make the rice pudding, and then they almost treat it like a creme brulee. They torch the top. Yeah. So it's got that crust, that kind of sweet, sweet crust. It's amazing. That sounds, that sounds as good as a whiskey. Uh, well, that'll happen soon. Yeah. What's the most surprising restaurant in this neighborhood for you? I don't think I can. I, I don't recall. I don't recall being surprised. Just pleased with the things I've eaten around here. And it keeps getting better down here. Yeah, but you know, to be honest, Soho has been uh, doing very well for itself in terms of restaurants for a long time. And it's like, I actually don't come here um, looking for, you know, surprising avant-garde cuisine because. Um, for a lot of reasons. One, the real estate is so expensive. So the places that you get here are sort of established crowd pleasers. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, right. Balthazar, Lord, or Mercer Kitchen, they're great examples of big crowd pleasing restaurants. But where you get, where I have found surprising things are in the outer boroughs or, you know, uptown where I live. Um, places where maybe chefs can afford, maybe there's a little more leeway to to do some avant-garde stuff have you been to dinosaur yeah I live, ah man I, I live maybe 45 feet away from dinosaur so you smell it oh all the time oh man barbecue out of control yeah amazing and it's like right under the bridge it's right under like the uh, the subway yeah that whole area is just wonderful i know hello and welcome to alaska flight 438 We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. Throughout this show, we've been talking about, you know, I'm a New Yorker. I walk everywhere. And it's it's such a walkable city, but this is such, also such a walkable neighborhood where we are here in Soho. And my next author knows a little bit about that because she's the author of a book called Walking Manhattan, 30 Strolls Exploring Cultural Treasures, Entertainment Centers, and Historical Sites in the Heart of New York City and the Lost. Oh, my goodness. I'm running out of time here. But that's the first book anyway. Ellen Levitt, how are you? I'm fine. So you obviously you must agree with my premise that you can walk anywhere. Oh, Manhattan is so walkable. It's so much fun to walk here. So let's talk about this neighborhood, too, because from this hotel, right, you just branch out and you can walk just about, you know, walk a mile and a half and you never get bored. Sure. I used to teach at a high school that's near here, so I walked all over the place, too, and, you know, especially on Fridays, and sometimes students would accompany me and we would go get pickles together on Essex Street. (laughs) So what are some of your favorite walks? Some of my favorite walks are in parks. There are so many amazing parks in Manhattan. And, you know, Central Park is the most familiar one. But Inwood Hill Park, way north, and Fort Tryon are so wonderful. You really feel like you're not in the city, but you know you are. And you have wonderful views and plants and trees and everything like that. I also like Riverside Park very much because... You're combining beautiful views, the typical trees and things like that, and you also have historical monuments. You know what I like about Riverside Park? And I'm a New Yorker, and I'm an East Sider. And a friend of mine said to me, let's go to Riverside Park. And I'm like, wow, this is so cool because you have all that and the river. It's right there. It's a great place to have a picnic, too. Oh, it is. 
Um, I was recently at the War Memorial, and it which was which one? The one by 80th Street, and there were still floral bouquets, but they were wilting. They were from um, from Memorial Day, and it was really wow. touching. Wow. Yeah. So, is there a walk that you wouldn't do through the sewers? You know something? You said that, you know, in Paris, one of the most popular tours is the tour of the sewer. I know. I've done it. I wouldn't do it here. No, no. They don't do it here. No. But that's a different kind of tour. But in this neighborhood, for example, right, you've got within a mile, you've got Chinatown and Little Italy and you've got Nolita. It's all there. So what would you recommend me to do? I I do like China, walking around in Chinatown. Sometimes it gets very hot, though, especially at this time of year. I would go a little further south. The area that's between um, all the municipal buildings and courts, and it's a little quieter, You're, except that you will hear the train going over the bridge. But that's part of New York. But it, And it's it's the rhythm and the, the beat. You know, it's, very, it's nice there. It really is. Now, you're also the author of a book that I find fascinating called The Lost Synagogues of Manhattan. How many have been lost? Well... At least 80-something. Um, and, in fact, a few more have closed in recent years, and, but the, the congregations moved. And, you know, you see, this, you see the stories now of the Catholic Church wanting to close a number of their, of their churches. It's all about the money and the real estate. It's real estate. It's also it's demographics. That's what I have found. Um, there was such a huge concentration of former synagogues in the Lower East Side and the East Village and the people moved. They wanted to move uptown. They wanted to move to Florida or Nassau County or wherever it was. You know, couldn't sustain all the buildings. So, but you found a few of them are still around. Well, at least eighty are still around. Some of them were just temporary. Some of them just lasted a few years. But some of them have closed even in the last ten years. It, you know. But even if you read your book, you can you can walk by them and still see them and, and appreciate the architecture. Yes, you can, and sometimes you can still see the Hebrew writing or the religious symbols mixed with uh, either a church symbol or a restaurant's um, chalkboard advertising what specials they have for the day. So we have restaurants that are in former synagogues. Yeah. Wow! Don't tell me they're open on on Friday night. <laughs> They are. You know they are. <laughs> right? Yeah. Ellen Levitt, the author of Walking Manhattan, 30 Strolls Exploring Cultural Treasures, Entertainment Centers, and Historical Sites in the Heart of New York City, and also her book, Fascinating Read, The Lost Synagogues of Manhattan. Hello? Uh, this is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. Coming to you from the Soho Grand Hotel, which is actually, if you go back almost 20 years, it was the first downtown luxury boutique hotel. And it's uh, it still holds that title in my book. Uh, great design, 
a great sense of a neighborhood in terms of figuring out what works and uh, you know, how, how it becomes almost synonymous with the neighborhood. We'll talk about that a little bit later with uh, my good friend uh, Tony Fatt. But first and foremost, when you walk out the door here, whether you turn left or right, I mean, you are in a gastronomic field day of every kind of restaurant you could imagine. And, and joining us now, somebody who, uh, who specializes in this, He's the editor of Serious Eats New York, Max Falklitz. How are you, man? Good to be here. How are you? You agree with that premise? I would, although I'd say it's a field mined with, well, mines. Uh, there's a lot of restaurants that are catering to tourists here that are really doing a disservice for the neighborhood. And as long as you're careful, I think they're pretty easy to avoid. Okay, so tell me the ones you want to avoid and tell me the ones you like to go to. Well, if there's someone outside an Italian restaurant singing That's Amore and telling you to come in and try the meatballs, <laughs> maybe take a pass. But that would be in Cleveland, too. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like there's the, the golden rule of travel and something you pick, you figure out when you've traveled enough is that all touristy neighborhoods sort of look the same. And But you see, I don't look at this as a touristy neighborhood. And I'm, I'm a New Yorker. Mm -hmm. I like to come down here and discover stuff because every neighborhood has, has its own personality, has its own rhythm, its flow, its dynamic. And this one has great shopping without it being, you know, an upscale branded department store. Mm -hmm. You agree with that? Well, if you go a little farther, uh, if you go a little farther east towards um, towards Little Italy. That's where you start getting into hyper tourist territory. Around here, uh, you have a lot of great bakeries. You have some good old school pizza joints. There's, like there's um, famous Ben's Pizza, which is right across the street from Dominique Ansel Bakery, home of the cronut that everyone goes to. And while they're waiting online for their cronut, <laughs> go get a pizza. What they really should do is go to Famous Ben's and get their Palermo slice, which is a Sicilian pizza with breadcrumbs on top, and it's it's a beautiful, beautiful slice of pizza. Okay, that's one. Mm -hmm. Give me another. Um, well, uh, while you're also at Famous Ben's, you should get some uh, get some of their Italian ices. They're one of the few people. They're one of the few places making good Italian ices left in New York. Afterwards, um, head into Chinatown. We have an incredible diversity of Chinese immigrants in Chinatown more than ever before now. And if you head a little farther east towards East Broadway. But wait, let's stop in Chinatown for a second mm -hmm. because that's where I get confused. I mm -hmm. don't get confused as much in Little Italy as I get confused in Chinatown because I really don't know mm -hmm. where, and I'm a New Yorker, mm -hmm. I really don't know where to go. The trick with the Chinese restaurants here in Chinatown is that you don't go to the sit-down shops. The sit-down shops that are trying to do everything are doing very little of those things well. But there's tons of specialist shops, little tofu factories or noodle shops or dumpling houses that are great at what they do. And if you focus on those dumpling houses, you focus on those noodle shops, you're going to have a much higher chance of success. And you can walk into most of them and come out with a good meal. And not too expensive. No. Five dollars at most. The nice thing about being at this hotel is mm -hmm. almost all of that is walkable. Yeah, this is, I feel like this is perhaps the most walkable neighborhood in Manhattan. There's so much to see in such a dense neighborhood, and all of it is good and interesting. Now, you mentioned the Italian place with the guy singing Amore. Mm -hmm. What's another place you'd avoid? Help me out here. I would say this is unfortunately a neighborhood that's attracted a lot of very expensive, trendy restaurants that aren't particularly great. They're fine for what they are, but they don't reach, they, 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 they aren't as good as the prices that they're trying to, at the price points that they're working with. So if you see a place that has a lot of leggy model types in there, these well, are, well, Excuse me, I, I don't care about the food anymore. <laughs> what are you talking about? Well, good, because neither do they. <laughs> but honestly, mm -hmm. using Soho Grand as your sort of like, you know, hub, mm -hmm. give me like a three or four block radius of where you'd go. 
of where I'd go around here. Well, honestly, I would head to Chinatown. It's, to me, the best concentration of good food in the immediate area. And walkable. And walkable. And you can hit multiple places in one day, and you can have a total field trip of, of a meal. I would also go to DePaulo's, which is a 100-year-old dairy and Italian specialty food store, which makes hands down the best fresh mozzarella you can get in New York. You head there around 1 or 2 in the afternoon. You can also get some of the porchetta as it's coming out of the oven, and that pigskin is some of the best food you can have in downtown Manhattan. We're talking with Max Falkowitz, the editor of Sirius Eats New York. You're a dumpling guy, aren't you? I am. So where's the best dumpling? That For that, for the real best dumplings, you have to head out to Flushing and Queens. But around here, <laughs> I would say the best dumplings come from a noodle shop on East Broadway called Lamjo Noodle. And you say, I would like some dumplings, and I would like them fried. And you pay them $3, and they hand you a plate of 12. And You're kidding. It's, it's, it's practically robbery. But they're, they're a beautiful thing. So you've been ripping them off for years? Well, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> and the best steak? That's a good... Because, you know, mm-hmm. people talk about Peter Luger, and they talk mm-hmm. about Gallagher's, and they talk about, you know... You can do a lot better than a lot of the steakhouses these days. The, the higher-end restaurants around the city have been seriously upping their steak game and doing a lot with very long, dry-aged cuts of meat. All of uh, Michael White's restaurants, all of the Marini restaurants, they're all doing great things with super dry-aged meat. And you don't need to go to a steakhouse for a great steak anymore. Interesting. And if you go to the mm-hmm. steakhouses, you'll find out they're starting to stock a lot of fish. That's true, which I can't really see why you would want to get at a steakhouse in the first place. Because some people get dragged to a steakhouse mm. with everybody else. Okay, I'll go and let's see what else they have on the menu. Mm-hmm. In the old days, they'd have maybe, maybe salmon. Do you ever get fish at a steakhouse, though? I do. You know why? Because I don't eat meat. Oh. And I get dragged to steakhouses all the time. <laughs> well, you should tell them, go to this other restaurant that's serving a lot of other better food, and they can get their steak while you can eat much better than them. Okay, great. Now, we, we dealt with the Chinese, mm-hmm. right? You didn't really deal with the Japanese. That you have to head a little farther north up to the East Village. You go along East 9th Street, and you're basically in Little Tokyo. And there, there's a wonderful grocery called Sunrise Mart where you head up, the, up up a set of stairs and you're in a Japanese grocery paradise. And you can buy sushi-grade fish there. You can buy all sorts of pantry staples. It's a beautiful thing. If you are sitting next to a small child or someone who is acting like a small child, please do us all a favor and put on your mask first. As I do every week at this time of the show, I encourage you to go to our website, petergreenberg.com, for our comprehensive list of all the aid and relief organizations doing all that hard work all around the world where you can get actively involved every time you travel with an opportunity to give back. And if you've got kids over the age of 12, guess what? They get to bring you for a life-changing experience. We're not talking about enlisting in the Peace Corps, although that's a, a wonderful thing to do. We're just talking about a few hours or maybe even a day, either at the front or the end of your, of your trip, where you have a chance to immerse yourself in the culture and give back. We always like to localize the opportunities every time we do this. And, of course, New York is no exception. Check out the Hudson River Park's green team. You get to work with seasoned horticultural staff and participate in all sorts of activities around landscaping and planting, weeding, pruning, mulching. Let's not forget mulching, uh, trimming and ornamental grasses, all the things that you can do all around the Hudson River area. And uh, the volunteer places uh, are open the third Saturday of every month. 
from July through November. And by the way, this especially applies to me. No experience is necessary. Uh, if you want more information, just go to our website about the Hudson River Park Green Team. Uh, joining me now, when we talk about neighborhoods in New York, we talk about the evolution of New York, the history of New York. Um, there's even now a series on on uh, on AMC on the making of the mob, right? Well, my next my next guest knows about the the places and the faces of mob history because he's written the book called Gangland New York. Tony DiStefano, how are you? I'm fine. I'm happy to be here. And we're right in the neighborhood, pretty close. Oh, very close. I mean, within. Literally, a very short walk of this hotel is uh, are some of the key neighborhoods and streets which uh, figure into mob lore in the city. And by that, I mean it very broadly. It's not just the Italian mob. I was about either. to ask that question. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 the Chinese mobs. It's the uh, the, the old Jewish mobs. It's uh, this mash of uh, of uh, ethnic stew. See, when I grew up, you know, you know what the Jewish mob was? Don't hurt me, please. Don't hit me. It was like uh. Jerry Lewis. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but they, the Jewish mob was there. Very substantial in the Lower East Side, particularly is where they sort of uh, gestated. And they, uh, if you go to Chinatown, which is a very short walk from this hotel, uh, Pell and Doyer Streets are two key streets in the history of mob, uh, mobdom in New York. That's where the Jewish mob, the Italians, uh, had their nightclubs, and they sort of bumped shoulders with the Chinese. And did they get along? They got along. The Chinese didn't get along with each other because that's the area of the famous Tang Wars of the early 20th century. But the Jewish gangsters, the Italian gangsters, they all got along and they had clubs that hey, became look, popular. Hey, look, Meyer Lansky got along with them? With, Absolutely. You see that in the, in uh, the, Godfather. the series. Oh, the Godfather and uh, the current series. What is... Uh what was the famous uh, Meyer Lansky line in that Godfather movie? What? Well, the Meyer Lansky uh, character, character, right, uh, said uh, it's it's basically this is uh, what we chose to this do. This is what we chose to do. He had that tick in his voice, right, right. which was an affectation that was very good. And he said that we're bigger than uh, U.S. Steel, General Motors, or something like that. that in was... terms of gross national product at that point? Yeah, that's day? probably an exaggeration, but what the heck? Hey, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> but did it move around, or did it stay in the neighborhoods? The, the neighborhoods changed over time. Now, the old tongs sort of evolved into more sort of benevolent associations. The Italians really moved up to and stayed in Little Italy. The Jewish mob sort of evolved and went to other areas. They stayed in the Lower East Side for a time. Then they gravitated out to Brooklyn, which became a very big place for the mob in New York City. And now Brooklyn is a very big place for the Russian mob. It, yeah, what and, ex and Queens. Yeah, ex exactly. I mean, the Russian mob is is more amorphous and it's less structured than the Italians were. It's more opportunistic. They come together for little syndicates and then they disappear. You know, you mentioned the Chinese were fighting within the Chinese. I'm assuming the Jewish guys were fighting within the Jews, and the Italians were fighting within the Italians. Like there was a very popular, not popular, but there was a very famous uh, fight that took place in 1912 where the Jewish gangsters got out of uh, Coney Island one night. They weren't having a good night. They came up to uh, Chinatown, to Doria Street. They got into a fight in one of the Italian clubs, and there was a gun battle. Oh, hold on. The Jewish gang gets involved with a Chinese guy in an Italian place. Well, they get involved on Doyer Street, not with the Chinese, but with the Italians, who they had bad blood with. And they started a big gun battle. And to make a long story short, there was a number of wounded people and a lot of arrests. And, of course, a woman was involved as well. And then everybody shocked. around... She, yeah, shocked. She wasn't shot, but she was shocked. We are. Uh, they then wound up in criminal court, which is where everything sort of wound up in those days. 
And yet, if you look at the history, and of course you've done that extensively, so many of the Italian guys were living in Staten Island. Well, they do, they did, and they that's where they migrated to. You know, that's where you went, if you're going big time, you went out to Staten Island. Paul uh, Castellano had his home on uh, Tote Hill in Staten Island. Um, See, now most of the guys I grew up with in the city, I grew up in Manhattan. The closest we ever got to Staten Island was we took the Staten Island ferry and never got off the ferry. We, we, we'd stop at Staten Island, turn around, came home. Oh, you did the ride back we and did forth. The ride. You did the That's round trip. We never did, got out. It was the cheapest date you had oh, in high school. God. It was the cheapest date. <laughs> right? It was free. But there was no food on the ferry, was it? You weren't there for the food. You were there. All right. You were there for the ambiance. For right. the view, of course. <laughs> yeah. So, But those guys actually stayed in Staten Island. Oh, they did. And, uh, you know, a lot of their children and the children's children sort of went on to their other ways. And that's part of the, the sort of the way the ethnic progression goes. You know, they become other, other people. But if you were going to walk from the Soho Grand, and you mentioned right. Chinatown, right. would you still see any remnants of their history, any remnants of their architecture, any remnants of their adventures? Oh, absolutely. You go to Pell Street, and there's an address, number 12, which is where Irving Berlin, believe it or not, got his start in music. It was a club run by this guy, Jewish gangster by the name of Mike Salter. And Salter hired Berlin to be the uh, uh, singing waiter. And one night Salter said to Berlin, he said, you know, the guys down the street on one of the Italian clubs, they wrote a song, why don't you write one? So Berlin wrote uh, Marie from sunny Italy and uh, that got him on his way to songwriting. And the rest, of course, as you know, to use an expression, is history. Wow. And you can still see that area? Oh, you can still see. The, the building is still there. Doyer Street, which uh, is, a, is an angled, one of my favorite streets in Chinatown, is an angled street. It's still there. Some of the old buildings are there. But you have to look. You have to look at the old brick facades, and you have to pick them out. You, new facades, forget about. You're not going to Okay, so it. now it's 2015. Right. Where do the gangs hang out now? They're being very low-key. Uh, you're not seeing them hanging out in the social clubs anymore. A lot like the, of old, the, uh, the old days of John Gotti. Oh, uh, the John Gotti's old social club on Mulberry Street. It's now a trendy shoe store. Really? Uh, yeah, it is. But, uh, if you, but if you push the button, the back door opens? No. No, oh, I don't think so. Okay. He didn't do the business there. He did it upstairs, which got him into trouble because the FBI got wired, wired to it, it and they, they tapped the apartment. But it, it's, it, they don't meet in the social clubs anymore because the FBI knows and if you show up in the social club, the FBI is going to photograph you. They're going to identify you. And that was Gotti's problem. You know, he'd have people come to the social clubs to, uh, uh, you know, uh, pay, their pay their respects. And uh, they got photographed. People the FBI didn't know suddenly became known. So now when you say low-key, where are they? Well, they hang out in small groups in small social clubs that are out of the way, which nobody really knows about. Or they meet in little groups of twos and threes. And they try to be very low-key because, let's face it, the FBI has been very effective with, you know, going after them. But the old traditional model of the mobs has changed, right? I mean, the hierarchy has changed. The, the, the power has shifted. Oh, the power has shifted because a lot of the old bosses are either dead or they're in jail or like Joe Messino of the Bonanno crime family, become government witnesses. So that structure becomes shredded, and now the people have come together in little groups that sort of administer the, the street crews. And it's not like it was. The old rackets are gone. But the Russian mob, they're big. The Russian mob has, a, has, a, has some clout, uh, but like I said, they really come together for opportunities, and then they sort of dissipate. The FBI's on to them, too. You get a lot of guys <laughs> who get in trouble, and, uh, you know, they get arrested for either human trafficking or some sort of fraud case, and then they get, uh, then they get to jail. 
So what you're saying is the days of Goodfellas is over. The days of Goodfellas is which over. Is a, which is a great movie. Yeah, it's over. It's over, but it's really kind of um, uh, become like the second team or third team. You don't get the old bosses like you used to. Even know? though they were the second team, they were quite entertaining. Oh, they were. I mean, Goodfellas was very entertaining. That was a bunch of ne'er-do-wells who did very well for themselves. There you go. Keep that going. This is flight 372 on SWA. The flight attendant's on board serving you today. Teresa in the middle, David in the back. My name is David, and I'm here to tell you that. Shortly after takeoff, first things first, there's soft drinks and coffee to quench your thirst. But if you want another kind of drink, then just holler. Alcohol or beverages will be $4. If a monster energy drink is your plan, that'll be $3, and you get the whole can. We won't take your cash. You got to pay with plastic. If you have a coupon, then that's Joining me now, an old buddy of mine. I try to see him at least once a year, if not twice a year. We usually meet right here at the Soho Grand. What a coincidence, because he's the president and COO of Grand Life of Hotels. Tony Fant, how are you, man? It's great to see you again, Peter. You know, you've been hearing part of the show already about, about this neighborhood. Um, and you've really sort of like watched it grow up in the last couple of years, haven't you? Well, we're the ones that actually started this movement down here. I mean, in 1996, we were the first to open. The Mercer hadn't quite opened yet. It was still open right. in Soonish. Hard to believe it's almost 20 years. It is almost 20 years. Wow. What was the challenge for you? Well, the challenge was, actually, Peter, there wasn't a challenge. I mean, once we came into the neighborhood, I think the the, business, the hotel was set up properly. We chose the right interior designer. We were the first to really establish the sense of place for hotels. I mean, if you thought about what was happening about that time, it was the Paramount Hotel, the Royalton. Ian Schrager had launched a boutique hotel kind of uh, brand and where he was being very exclusive with people, with the models, and kind of like trying to keep people out, we decided to bring people in. And so we kind of brought the neighborhood in here, and I think we also brought a lot of the elements of the local place and established this as a neighborhood place. So as opposed to being this place that was in a community but sort of exclusive, you became a part of the community. Absolutely. And I remember that we opened up the hotel uh, on uh, August 4th, 1996. And, of course, this was a ground-up build. Uh, but that morning at 10 o'clock. But you know what? If you walk in the hotel, you'd never know it. And that's exactly the point. Is first people that walked in was the neighborhood. They wanted to see what this place was. And so many people stopped me and said, what was this before? Exactly. Well, when you walk in the lobby, you inevitably have to ask that question. It felt like it had been here for a long time. You know, I loved what you did with the, uh, the metal work in there and the stairway. You know, it, it, it looks like it was going back to the 1880s. Well, it, I mean, that bottle glass staircase is iconic here for Soho Grand, obviously. And it integrated a lot of different elements from the architecture of this neighborhood, which was, of course, the cast iron and the bottle glass. In a world of cookie-cutter hotels, in a world of branding, in a world of frequent stay programs, you don't have one, do you? We don't. And you're still here. Because we cater to our guests. I mean, we just try to create a really good experience for people, and we try to connect to this neighborhood. We realize that when people stay with us, they are staying in the hotel, but it's really more than that. We're just part of their experience. I mean, their experience is from the moment they've arrived in New York to the, to the moment they leave. And we're going to facilitate and give them the curated, the best experience they could possibly have. Well, I've always said, I've always said that when you are a hotelier and you're trained in a certain way, um, the, the traditional way of training is to say, what are all the great things you could do at the hotel because you're at the hotel? When in fact, what you should be doing is saying to yourself, what are all the great things that we enable you to do because you're staying at the hotel? And that's what we do. Basically, what we've done is we've established, we curate a neighborhood guide for our hotel guests. 
and that guide is uh, available on our hotel website, grandlifehotels.com, uh, but also through our concierge staff. And we carefully select the shopping, the bars, the restaurants, the experience that people really want to have that's indicative of Soho as a local destination, not as a New York destination or not as a tourist destination, but as an authentic experience. And if you're successful, and not every hotel that tries is, but if you're successful, if you stay at the hotel, you feel that you're a part of the neighborhood. You're a part of the neighborhood, and that's what we feel over and over. We get a high repeat uh, with our clientele because they, they feel like they've, they're just exploring. Maybe they stayed at Midtown the first time they came to New York, but then they've discovered Soho, they discovered Tribeca, Chinatown, the Lower East Side, and they kind of branch out from there. I mean, when you think about how many different neighborhoods there are in New York, you know, you could probably come to New York and stay in... 30 different hotels and stay in 30 different neighborhoods. You can, but right here, you're really at that epicenter of, of numerous neighborhoods. And that's the beauty of being in Soho or Tribeca. I mean, literally, you're so close to Chinatown, the Lower East Side, now all the uh, development that's occurring on the Hudson River side, uh, all the way down into uh, Battery Park. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a great location. I mean, if you actually take a look, at, as you say, at the epicenter, and just take it one mile, it's just 20 city mm -hmm. blocks. That's all it is, right? That's how I grew up in New York. You knew a mile was between 76th and 96th Street. That was one mile, right? And you can walk it easily. So you look at that one mile in radius, you got everything. You do, and there's, there's Soho's changed over the years. When I first came into this neighborhood, there were a lot of, of there were a lot of galleries. Uh, there was a lot of nightlife. And for the first five years until the early 2000s, the, the nightlife was very significant. But then it's changed. It evolved over time. It went to the Lower East Side and then up to the Meatpacking District. So Soho's changed as a neighborhood. It's become more retail-based, but there's still, I disagree with the previous segment, I think there are a lot of great local restaurants and bars in this, in this area. You got it. Tony Pham from Grand Life Hotels. Thanks for joining us, man. Thanks for having us. My pleasure, Peter. We appreciate Always. that. You got it. Keep the staircase. <laughs> we'll be back with more when we return to the Soho Grand Hotel right after this. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. Let's go to something we've been talking about throughout this show, which is my love affair with the bar here at the Soho Grand. Um, it wasn't always like that, but they changed it. And what they did is you walk into this bar, and, and my next guest will tell me how many numbers I've gotten wrong, but I counted something like 50 different brands of bourbon, American bourbon, American whiskey, if you will, um, from, from states I didn't even know that made it. Um, and that's all they've got up there. It's amazing, right? That is correct. Uh, the Grand get, How many bottles? Did I get the We have brand? exactly 50 American whiskeys. I did, I did get you it. You got it right. Oh, my God. <laughs> what do, I, do, I win a, do I win a glass? You win a free shot. <laughs> that, by the way, is <laughs> Natasha David, who's the mixologist here and the consultant of the Soho Grand. We've been seeing so many stories about the explosion in American whiskey, right? Because I'm a single malt guy from Scotland. That, that's, that's my speed. But now you take a look at how this American industry has has really grown and so rapidly, you're really honoring them with that bar. Absolutely. I mean, the craft distillery movement that's happened the last 10, 
15 years uh, in America is incredible. I mean, we've got people making all kinds of things in Brooklyn now. We've got people making whiskeys and rums and gins in Brooklyn. So the whole movement towards craft spirits now, and don't tell me. Now, don't tell me that one of the brands is called How You Doing. <laughs> maybe I'll do Maybe that'll be my discovery. Get out of here. That's a good one. Or, or, or one that if you drink too much, Forget about it. <laughs> These are all very good ideas. You better brand it. I'm, I'm, t- I'm stealing those Come ideas. Come on. You, yeah, but I, I, I got a little percentage. <laughs> Here's the thing. Of all those bottles that are up there, what's the weirdest one? What's the most, you know, exotic, if you will? Well, actually, right now we have a really, really interesting whiskey from Whistlepig. Um, it's, from wh- where are they from? They are from... They are from Virginia, I believe, um, and it's a, a 90% rye whiskey, and what they do is they do special- 90%? 90% rye, so it's a very spicy whiskey. Wow. Um, but what they do is they do special bottlings, and right now we have our hands on a very limited edition special bottling, which is a 12-year-age rye whiskey, which is then aged for four more months in Madeira um, oak barrels. Wow. It's quite tasty. And we have, it's very allocated, and I think we were lucky enough to get so 10 bottles. That's about as far away from Jack Daniels as you can get. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah, it's pretty special stuff. Yeah, wow. Do pe- Are people really becoming educated about it? Yes, absolutely. I think the customers becoming more and more savvy, and I think the Soho Grand was very smart to start taking the bar, uh, the bar program very seriously, because customers at this point, they expect high quality. They expect good whiskey. They expect good cocktails. I mean, with all due respect, you don't see a lot of people coming and asking for Jim Beam. It happens. You know, it does. So somebody, okay. (laughs) I'm not saying it doesn't happen. And it's not, you know, it's not a bad product. It's just so, there's just so much more. I think a lot of people have a very narrow version of what whiskey is, and they don't know about how much there is. And that's what's exciting. Are you running a sort of like American whiskey educational program? Well, I try not to be too preachy, but I definitely think you can go from like, you know, a very recognizable brand like Buffalo Trace. Yes. And then that's same. Wood, dis- or Woodford Reserve. Exactly. And from that same distillery, actually, they have this this beautiful whiskey called Eagle Rare Tenure. It's a single barrel whiskey. It's going to completely change your view on whiskey. It has all these delicious sort of ripe fruit notes. And then you throw that in an old fashioned and. Okay, you sold me. <laughs> Natasha David, the mixologist here at the Soho Grand. What's the name of that whiskey again? Uh, whistle, which one? Whistlepig? Whistlepig Rye. Come get that because it's limited edition. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast on the new location somewhere around the world. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. 
two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.